I'm Will Hedrick. And I'm Jordan Schaffer. And this is Dog Ears and Timestamps, a book club podcast. We're making reading fun. Making it fun. Funsies. This is the last episode of our Neverwhere series. Yeah, it was, it was a fun fun journey through the book. It was cool kind of getting to know, I feel like we got to know Neil Gaiman a little bit. Got to learn about each other, how we're reading the books, a lot about how the different intake methods for reading, you know, change things, because I swapped between reading and listening, as, you know, we can talk about here in a mm-hmm. minute, but um, very cool, very cool first book experience, honestly, I thought, I really enjoyed it all. Yeah, this has been really cool. Um, I'm glad that we decided to try and do something like this, uh, for a lot of reasons, but the main reason just being as much as there was to sort of learn, like everything you just said, mm-hmm. being able to approach reading a book in a different way. Yeah. You know, thinking about, with the goal of talking about it with somebody and all that sort of stuff, usually, just, I, you know, aside from, you know, shitty school reports that I didn't oh, care yeah. about, I didn't, you know, I didn't try on those at all. That was literally just like, here, take this piece of paper that I scribbled things on so that you can shut up about it. Uh, every other book that I read for fun, I just read for myself, and I never really talked about anything to anybody. Even the big books like Harry Potter that we all read, yeah. we'd be like, yeah, that was cool, and then go on about our day. Like, we didn't actually talk about it. Yeah, I know sometimes when I think you and I would talk about Game of Thrones, because um, you had been reading it as uh, after the show came out, right? Yeah, I was super late to the game on that. And uh, in, Anyway, it was really fun uh, listening to you talk about it, just because of where you were and how I... Like, I had listened to those books so many times, uh, honestly. I, uh, mm-hmm. I was, like, in the middle of a dropout of college, so I was, like, super depressed, bummed on my life, and <laughs> I just, honestly, this is going to sound a little depressing, but I got lost in the Game of Thrones world, and that's sort of where I threw my depression kind of into, mm-hmm. you know, a Westeros, and uh, I, I got obsessed. I read all the lore on the wikis about all the characters, and anyway, just then kind of being so obsessed and then hearing you get into it, that was a lot of fun, just hearing your different thoughts, and you got a very, like, very good memory with uh, with books and stuff so that's always been something i've you know kind of admired about you especially like in history classes and things like that was always i mean you were great at like all the other classes that we were ever in together like it seemed you know but just history and english you stood out i have a uh, a tendency for remembering names and facts mm-hmm. because i find it interesting were you good that's at that's all there is to it <laughs> were you good at german when you took it i mean you seemed to like it a lot no i mean it was easy for me to pick up on rules mm. and you know the tendencies of the language yeah uh, but the literal memorization of the words was not something i was good at you know that sort of traditional learning structure of language or learning another language rather where it's just a bunch of memorization mm-hmm. in a formal class like that i wasn't good at that sort of stuff but i could remember the rules okay. and things like that you know just the I guess in the same way that I could remember different things in history class. And then um, the rules and logic of different fantasy worlds, uh, speaking to books like you were talking about, mm-hmm. I was really good at remembering Game of Thrones. Because for whatever reason, I just pay attention to that stuff. That's cool. There's so many names and things in that one. It's uh, you got to really pay attention. And uh, Yeah. <laughs> actually, so it's funny. I was uh, Since I've been moving into this new house, I, uh, I found my old Mr. Kippy shirt, like my Reed Mr. Kippy shirt. Yeah. And, uh, I don't know if we've talked about him yet on the podcast. But I got one. Um, he's, uh, back in mine Will's hometown of, uh, Portland, Texas, um, Mr. Kippy was, uh, a gentleman who went around to all the different libraries in the Coastal Bend, South Texas area, uh, and he would, uh, go to libraries or go to different elementary schools with his, like, 
you know, book van, mm-hmm. and uh, he would just go and he'd promote reading. He'd go, he'd read him the chapter yeah, or something read, from like, a yeah. really interesting book, a kid's like a book. A little to... reading event for kids to be all cool. Like, yeah. Exactly. And he's such a goofy, fun, nice guy that, like, he's just, he's the best. He's one of, uh, one of and our... And then we grew up and met his daughters. Oh, yeah. And became friends with them. And uh, then hanging out with him. I never knew him, actually, as Mr. Kippy. I knew him as Mr. Edge, which is kind of weird for uh, everybody else. Everybody else was calling him Kippy or Mr. Yeah, Kippy. Yeah, that's how I knew him was Mr. <laughs> Kippy. I was just like, Mr. Kippy's awesome. It'll yeah. be great to go to the library and uh, have another reading with Mr. Kippy or whatever. And then whenever we met Caitlin, uh, she was like, yeah, y'all might know my dad. Is Mr. Kippy? I was you like, might, no shit! <laughs> you might have heard <laughs> of Mr. Her. Kippy's your dad! The local celebrity. <laughs> right. Yeah. But Well, anyway, and how was, uh, how was your week since last Tuesday? We talked a little bit, uh, you know, because of what was going on, but how, how was it for you? Oh, it's just all the same. It's just work. Mm-hmm. Um, and like I mentioned a little bit, Last week is just work in postseason baseball is all it is. Gotcha. Well, uh, I was out of town and I had you do the favor of checking in on the on the puppies. Is anything yeah. interesting happened to them? No. <laughs> okay. Well, that's good. I'd rather nothing. Interesting <laughs> nothing than, like, super, super interesting happened. Well, Panda escaped and I. <laughs> right. Totoro tried to escape for a half second. Yeah, I saw that somebody put a. I put that little uh, cinder you. block underneath that part of the fence. I caught him digging there. Thank you. And I was like, save me. No. <laughs> I don't think so, Toto. But cool. Um, well. Then, uh, my, so when did you find time to read? So for whatever reason, after last week's recording, and then I did like the first edit and put it up so that you could listen to it in the morning before doing the final edit, I was just in a weird mood and I couldn't sleep. So I was like, mm-hmm. oh, I'm just going to, I'm just going to finish the book. <laughs> so I just laid in bed and finished the book and then went to sleep, you know, I don't remember how long it took. It was probably a few, I felt like I went to sleep way later than I wanted to. <laughs> um, so I just finished it then and then I didn't read it again until today when I was doing my notes. Okay. Awesome. And, uh, did you see anything from like the skip in the week from like reading it on, you know, last Tuesday to no, reading it today? Nothing changed in my experience reading it, uh, the second time for notes. Yeah. I think usually the, the only things that ever change are kind of when we go over notes and the subtle differences we catch between each other. Yeah. That's, that's when really I really get, time. yeah. Yeah. The, the that's when I might pick up on something. Yeah. For me reading this week, I, uh, I was going out of town on Wednesday after like I took a half day at work, so I left at eleven, and then I ended up driving up to Detroit, and uh, so I was up there. Uh, went to a Red Wings game, so that was a lot of fun. Uh, we ended up losing, <laughs> but it was the mm. first professional hockey game I ever went to, and it was a lot of fun. They were starting a bunch of new guys, and uh, anyway, and then I just hung out with uh, my girlfriend's family up there, and uh, that was a lot of fun. But uh, we actually got into a car accident, so I flew back on uh, on. Sunday rather than driving back and then Sunday is actually when I started crushing the book I mm-hmm. uh, I was listening to it a little bit you know but I had the book in my hands already just in case I, I couldn't read or my headphones died or whatever right. so I, I did this thing that I used to do a long time ago I used to listen to audiobooks and have the, the hard book and I'd have the guy read to me basically as I was reading the book mm. and uh, doing that it was really weird. I caught almost every detail. I was like so focused because I was listening and I was reading. Right. And I, I really, I didn't, I didn't give it more than the, the once over uh, this time because I ended up reading more than half of it and it was cool. When I listened to it again, I did go, I do always do a final re-listen today, you know, the day of the mm-hmm. recording while I'm at work. And uh, when I listened to it today, I was like, man, I just, I missed so much when I'm like working just because re-listening, I... I was like, man, when did that thing happen that I was really, like, I wanted to hear that, like, hear him say it. And some of the pronunciations we can go over later, but I was just like, man, is that how you say it, or is that how Neil Gaiman says it, or is that how, like, British people say it, or, I mean, is there a difference between the British pronunciation and the American pronunciation? Like, we go to 
uh, Trafalgar Station later or whatever. And in One Piece, there's a character, his name is Trafalgar Law. <laughs> and so that's how I read it in the book. And uh, when he says it in the audiobook, it's uh, Trafalgar or something. <laughs> so I'd never heard it before. So mm-hmm. anyway, it was just uh, it was fun. And then I got back uh, Sunday and just crushed the book again today. I didn't do any listening Monday, but... Good week overall, except for the accident. Yeah. You know, other than that, I was yeah. able to get work done. And I, People I, wreck you, their cars. It yeah, happens. No, yeah, of course. I wrecked we're my car safe. a year ago. <laughs> yeah, no, and I mean, we're all safe, so it yeah. could be a lot worse. And, right, uh, right. Yeah, all's well that ends well. But, <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, it was, it was fun. And it was cool reading because uh, Bailey's done with the books, so... Oh, yeah. she's been waiting on me to catch up and she's like i don't know what y'all are talking about you keep leaving off on a cliffhanger i was like yeah we're stopping at the end of chapters that's typically when authors leave cliffhangers to make you want right. to because usually you'll be reading and then you'll be like okay i'll stop after this chapter and right. then when they leave it on a cliffhanger it's like i can't and stop like maybe twice <laughs> I, I don't know if i've ever done that i remember sitting down and reading maybe like half of a harry potter book or like half of aragon or eldest or something but it took me like all Hey, I'm a slow reader. Mm-hmm. So I think I'm probably like a medium-ish reader. I really don't know. But mm-hmm. one time I sat down and read all of uh, Dandelion Wine by Ray Bradbury. What other books did he do? Fahrenheit. Oh, that's why I know it. And then Animal... No, not Animal Farm. Yeah, Animal Farm. No, that's George Orwell. Yeah. Got it. Ray Bradbury was all anti-technology mm-hmm. and like anti-future. <laughs> See, that's why I thought uh, he did 1984 too, but that's George Orwell also. So Yeah. George Orwell was all about uh, socialism, being against socialism and stuff, mm. and like uh, like bad capitalism. And um, Ray Bradbury was all against technology uh, and futurism. Yeah, he would not be into um, all the AI we have, I guess, huh? Oh, no. He like actively was like, don't do that shit. What is wrong with you people? That's what all his books are about, is <laughs> against like that sort of thing. But uh, yeah, I read Dandelion Wine in one sitting one time, and then one time I read... Uh, a separate piece by John Knowles uh, all in one sitting separate piece see now on books that you've read that I haven't read and vice versa it might be fun later for the podcast to just do like a special episode like one week um, yeah we can just do an offshoot where we just read the book and then do one episode one episode it. yeah where we talk about the full script because you would have already read certainly it certainly like then, a bigger book that a lot of people may have read like yeah. they wanted to go over a Harry Potter book something yeah, like that yeah or like yeah any, any kind of big book maybe even uh, we could even do the entire series that way yeah because that, then that would just be like seven bonus episodes mm-hmm. of us going over the entire series yeah that'd be fun well let us know let us know what y'all think about that <laughs> <laughs> but anyway let's get into what uh, Neil Gaiman was all about and while we're going through this I'll keep you guys updated on the uh, game three between the Boston Red Sox and New York Yankees which uh, will be totally useless to you because by the time you hear this the game will have already ended well so but you'll get to hear my commentary on it yeah and that's priceless so speaking of baseball mm-hmm. before we get in oh yeah no so at this point, mm-hmm. we're finishing up the divisional round. Who's we? The divisional series. We as in baseball in general. Oh, baseball, okay. The Astros swept the Indians, so we're going to the championship series. Uh, the Sox and Yankees are tied at one right now, so they've each still got two wins to beat the other. The Milwaukee Brewers swept the uh, Rockies, and the Dodgers beat the Braves in four. So... It's going to be Dodgers and Brewers on the National League side, and whoever wins out between the Sox and the Yankees will play the Astros in the American League side. And then, after that, we get the World Series. So it's very exciting times. Yeah, so you're going for Astros, right? Astros, yeah, yeah, we're primarily a Houston sports team, and then secondarily a New England-Boston sports team. Gotcha. Uh, So I'm also a Red Sox fan, but 
when it comes down to it, because it'll probably be the Red Sox and the Astros in the American League Championship Series. When it comes down to it, it's Astros. The Astros have been killing it, too, recently. The are, they just cannot yeah, stop. <laughs> we are going into, we went into the postseason in good shape, and then sweeping the Indians was clutch. Uh, so, yeah, we're, we're hot as shit right now, and we'll see what happens between the Yankees and the Red Sox. It could No, I'm sorry, they're not 1-1. One one. They're 2-1. and one. The Sox won yesterday. Mm-hmm. So the Red Sox could potentially end it all today by winning, um, or the Yankees could take it to Game 5. We'll see what happens. All right. I'll let y'all know. Yeah. <laughs> I'll let y'all know from the past. <laughs> well, this will be my only avenue to sports, other than maybe checking out a Red Wings game now that I'm a, I have a team to root for. <laughs> right? That, well, I mean, I've always rooted for Houston. I like the Texans, and I like the Astros, so I got a team, but yeah. I just don't. Having lived there for a short period, and mm-hmm. then... You know, your brother lives there and stuff like that. It's you know easy to identify in that way for sure. It's the only thing I can slightly even kind of <laughs> devote my loyalty to, other than maybe like A and M when I went there. But I don't know if they're ever playing that great. That's so. often the problem with people uh, when they can't get into sports is because they don't have an easy way to identify with the team. Yeah, you and so then you end up just trying true. to kind of like pick something mm-hmm. for any arbitrary reason. Yeah, and you know that either can or can't work for some people. But anyways. Yeah, let's do this book. I am down. Chapter 15, you want to start Chapter off? Chapter 15. So we open with the party and Lamia leaving the market and heading to a house in which Down Street exists. Um, they get to it and there's a sign that says uh, Down Street, uh, knock or something like that. Please knock. Yeah, Richard. And, uh, oh, do you want to read yo, it? I, I wasn't gonna, there wasn't nothing else. If you want to read that, actually. Oh, yeah. It says, uh, there's a sign that says Down Street, please knock. And then Richard goes... You get to the street through a house? Asked Richard. No, said Lamia. The street is in the house. So it's just more magic. (laughs) So they go into the house. Well, like a a doorman comes and gets it. He's all, you know, cranky because he had to wake up. They go in. They go down four sets of stairs that are in increasingly less impressive iteration. Oh, yeah, I remember that. (laughs) And then they, uh, at the bottom of that, they arrive at an old service elevator. They take that. And at the bottom of that, they find that uh, they're kind of just the elevator is just hanging out over nothing Mm -hmm. um it's kind of adjacent to a giant stone tower that and uh, there's a wooden plank that's connecting where the elevator is hanging to the stone tower now the description of the stone tower without going over it several times like i had to uh, is a little bit confusing but this is the best way that i can think of to describe it if you think of a glass sort of in the way that the listeners can't see this but your glass right here just a if you just cup. think of that, as, yeah, if you just think of that as the shape of the tower, mm-hmm. and then coming out from it is the wooden plank to the hanging elevator, and then on the inside of the cup is a spiraling staircase that spirals around the edge to oh, the okay. bottom, and at the bottom of the cup is where the, the labyrinth that we end up at is. Uh, okay, cool, cool. Yeah. yeah, the way it describes it in the book is an inside-out Tower of Babel, and so it's like, I don't even know what the Tower of Babel looks like, let alone inside-out. Yeah, out. aside from <laughs> like the description that I heard of the Tower of Babel, the one time that I read the Bible, <laughs> oh, yeah. like, I really didn't know what the Tower of Babel was supposed to look like, and I don't even know that it has a description, it's been so long it may not. But, you know, like everything from the Bible and old stuff like that, there have been artist depictions and things like that that Mm -hmm. Richard is probably referencing. Richard also, classic Richard, he always has to say the wrong thing at the wrong time. He, When they're going down in the elevator, Richard, he's just like, "Uh, now would be a very bad time to discover that one was claustrophobic, wouldn't it? Yes, said Dor. (laughs) Then (laughs) I I won't, (laughs) said Richard. And then they went down. (laughs) It's just, okay, Richard. Right. But, uh... 
So the, they get out of the elevator. Uh, they're walking across the wooden ledge to get to the tower. Mm-hmm. Richard freezes. We uh, remember that he's bad at heights from the first meeting with Old Bailey whenever he and Carabas go up the ladder that exited from a sewer to the mm-hmm. rooftop. He also reminds us. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Ultimately, he, he can't cross and he's freaking out. Hunter goes back to help him out. They continue down the stairs. The reason the bridge was so scary to cross too was because um, somebody had pressed the button for the elevator back up top. Yeah. So when the elevator started going back up, it started making the bridge a little rickety and rockety. And <laughs> yeah, exactly. So he had to go across immediately, and then that's when Hunter comes in and saves the day. And uh... So then they just continue down the stairs. Um, they're walking for a little bit. Slowly, Richard and Lamia have fallen behind Doran Hunter, kind of just like separated. They're walking slower for whatever reason. Not for whatever reason, it's because this is Lamia's design. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lamia has, uh, they're talking about, you know, they're just talking. Eventually, Lamia asks for some of Richard's heat. Lamia ran a cold finger down his cheek. You're so warm, she said admiringly. Must be wonderful to have so much warmth. (laughs) And then uh, Lamia looked him up and down, pleading sweetly. Would you give me some of your heat, Richard? She asked. I'm so cold. (laughs) Richard doesn't really know what's going on. He's obviously under her seduction stuff that's happening right now, so... He uh, can't really think. There's a there's a, a part where it says that something inside of him is screaming not to go along with it, but he can't help. So he's like, yeah, sure. well, it doesn't say, yeah, take my heat. He just nods, and then she starts making out with him and yeah. taking all his heat. Noshing. And then uh, then we cut to Carabas, who arrives, sees what's happening, and stops Lamia. One cool thing about the when Richard lost his heat, it seemed as though he was getting frozen. Like, his eyes, he couldn't blink. He just started to get, like, an ultimate chill up his body and, like, yeah. kind of froze him, sh- like, still. And uh, and then you're right, when Carabas sees that, he, uh, I don't know, does he run up on her? He seized her hard by the neck and lifted her off the ground. Give it back, he rasped in her ear. Give him his life back. The, the velvet reacted like a kitten who had just been dropped into a bathtub, wriggling and hissing and spitting and scratching. It did her no good. She was held tight by the throat. Carabas forces her to give the heat back. She gives it all back, and then Carabas tells her to go away. Don't ever go near him again. Mm-hmm. After that, Richard uh, is talking to Carabas. We were expecting to see you at the market. Yes, well, some people thought I was dead. I was forced to keep a low profile. Why Why did some people think you were dead? The Marquis looked at Richard with eyes that had seen too much and gone too far. Because they killed me, he said. Come on, the others can't be too far ahead. And this is right when, so like in the book, there's not a break. But in the audio book, so at timestamp 9 hours, 53 minutes, and 47 seconds, it blows out with this just the song that they always throw in. It's like the bah, 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 bah. I don't even know what the song is right now, but... If y'all want to hear the song, I think that's a weird spot to throw it in because it is not a break in the <laughs> in the book. But uh, it does kind of change perspective because that's when Richard goes. I think they're well, just going. Richard yeah. just looks off and starts to. Yeah, he looked over the side of the path across the tunnel where he could see Dora and Hunter. Um, yeah, and they noticed that Krupp and Vandermar are lying in wait on the level below them. So Carabas says, "Go, so, you know, warn them. I can't run yet, so go ahead." So Richard catches up. It's uh, too late. Krupp and Vandermar appear, and then uh, Richard says, Hunter, now, or something you know, to that effect, like, do something. And then Hunter, Hunter, quickly! And then Hunter betrays the party, or reveals that she's, you know, the mole that was uh, Krupp had said existed earlier, and all that sort of thing. Kicks Richard to knock him down. 
And then Kroop reveals that Hunter agreed to work for their boss before agreeing to work for Dor, which makes the whole thing with Varney make no sense at all. To remind you guys, Varney is the guy that they hired to be uh, to audition to be her bodyguard. Yeah. So if they already had Hunter, yeah, they should have just sent her. It doesn't make she was sense make it. because they make it seem that Islington hires Hunter without uh, consulting Kroop and Vanamore. Got it. Um, or at least maybe not consulting, like maybe let them know or something like that. But it doesn't make sense that Islington would order them to hire somebody to become Dora's bodyguard when he had already hired somebody to become Dora's bodyguard. Yeah, I mean, maybe he's laying... I mean, I honestly think it was a little bit of a slip-up on the writing, it's, but... Uh, it's, and along with a couple of other things that happen later, it is definitely just a slip-up of, in my opinion, just a slip-up of writing or... Not even a slip up, but a little bit of laziness or giving up whenever you have found yourself to be in like a weird hole with your writing where you can't figure out how to reconcile two mm-hmm. things. And then you just say, well, fuck it. Like just whatever. Yeah. It, it is what it is. Because there's different things that I've read and different games that I've played where things, whenever everything is supposed to start coming together at the end, it doesn't mm-hmm. come together quite right because the the writing that happened prior to it wasn't laid out well. The, uh, the the example that I like to use most whenever I'm thinking about this sort of thing, there's a game that came out a long time ago, well, now a long time ago. It's not actually super long ago. Uh, called Heavy Rain on the mm-hmm. PlayStation 3. And what that is is it's a narrative from four different perspectives uh, about a murderer, a serial killer, and one of the characters is a detective and so you spend a lot of time uh, as the detective going you know, through the, his story and trying to figure everything out. And then at the end of the game, it turns out he's the serial killer. So this whole time, you're in the detective's head hearing his thoughts about all the clues that he's finding. Like, oh, maybe the killer uses this kind of typewriter, blah, blah, blah. But he's the fucking thing. So why is his thoughts that you're in his head with not him being like, Oh, I should use this typewriter next time, or right. I should change typewriters to throw them off my trail. It's a total betrayal of story and a total betrayal of the reader, and that's the uh, sort of stuff that this is, and I hate that. Yeah, no, I, I see that a little bit, because the only justification I can kind of see for Islington hiring Hunter and not telling them is just that maybe Islington doesn't fully trust Krupp and Vandemar, so may, I mean, maybe she's trying to throw them off. Or sorry, I don't know. Why I keep calling it uh, he or she, but it, you know, maybe it was trying to throw Croup and Vandemar off. Maybe it was just trying to add a little bit more because we had to. There had to be some sort of conflict and somebody that we hated, so that when Hunter came in and kicked ass, we fell in love with Hunter. Yeah, that's a so, device for getting us on their side. Exactly, not a device for a sensible story. Right, Islington <laughs> wouldn't do that to so, get a reader for the future when it goes down in history. To yeah. you know? <laughs> right, it's so it's just. For all that I can figure out and think of, it's cheap, and it uh, doesn't work. One cool thing that happened, well, not cool, just silly, and showed uh, Krupp and Vandemar being silly. Mr. Krupp was saying to uh, to Dor, just think of us as an escort service. Oh. And then Mr. <laughs> Vandemar says, only without the bosoms. And he sounded ever so slightly embarrassed. Mr. Krupp turned to Mr. Vandemar, escort in the sense of accompany Mr. Vandemar. Ensure our fair lady gets where she's going in safely. I'm comparing you neither to a lady of the evening nor a common street harlot. Mr. Vandemar was unmollified. Said we were an escort service, he muttered. Know what that is? Strike it from the record, Mr. Vandemar. I misspoke myself. 
Let us from henceforth be chaperones, guards, accompanists. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. They're just silly. They're <laughs> I so like them weird. a lot. <laughs> yeah. They're like almost comic relief and cool. oftentimes in slightly inappropriate situations where it would maybe be served to be in a different spot mm-hmm. than it is. I don't know. No, I, I agree. I never fully know how I feel about their weird dialogue. Sometimes it's perfect and, you know, fits whatever situation they're in perfectly, but sometimes it's just, it, it seems like it could have been in a different spot for uh, to greater effect. But anyways. Yeah, where'd we leave off? So then, uh, now that Hunter's revealed her betrayal and they talk about, you know, the thing we, we already talked about, Barney, uh, Croup asks for the key from the Blackfriars. Richard says he has it, he's bluffing. He isn't expecting it, but he finds a key in his back pocket. He assumes it's from his old flat, and he holds it out. Croup takes the key um, and immediately sees through the bluff, hands it to Vandemar to show him, and then Vandemar destroys the key, and then hurts Richard, starts kicking him and just beating on him. Yeah, it appeared to be a lecture in kicking. So <laughs> it, was, it was fun little read, just because he was saying... You kick someone here and it hurts really bad, but if you have to kick them really hard here for it to hurt the same amount. <laughs> it, was right. just, it didn't even sound like it made any sense because the second kick was, it sounded like it hurt way more. But <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think what he's doing there is he's uh, just describing, or he's uh, you know, giving a lecture in his mastery of torture oh. where he says something like, people think it's how hard you kick, but it's where you kick. Gotcha. And then as an example, he says, see, if I kick you here, it hurts this bad. If I kick you here, I have to hit you twice as hard to make it hurt the same level. So mm, <laughs> he's gotcha. just describing, you know, the um, the precision with which you should torture. The uh, this gets Dor to admit that she has the key to stop them from continuing to hurt Richard. Before they leave, Hunter asks about her payment. Croup hands her a long fishing pole case, and then they leave. Hunter is opening the case. Richard is making a pretty sweet Judas Iscariot reference. With the 30 pieces of silver. Who is Judas Iscariot? What is that? Judas Iscariot is the uh, disciple that betrays Jesus ah, to thank the you. Pharisees. Okay, there we go. For 30 okay. pieces of silver. Yeah, well, that's that's uh, appropriate because we learn here in a second that the weapon is a spear. So that made me yeah. just automatically yeah. think of the a spear of in, destiny. Yeah. <laughs> and it's the spear that is referenced earlier whenever they first meet Serpentine. Mm-hmm. And they're just kind of like offhandedly like, yeah, you're going to need the spear if you want to kill the beast. Yeah. So that's what it is. Hunter is like losing it over the spear. She's way into it. I was so into it. Because she's a hunter. Richard asks who Hunter is working for, uh, which is when Carabas shows up with a crossbow that he got from who knows where, telling Hunter to <laughs> spill the beans. Hunter says it's Islington. Carabas instructs Richard to pick up the spear and Hunter to walk in front. They continue down the stairs. Yeah, Richard's like, why are we taking her with us? He's like, would you rather her be behind us? It's like, well, no. Yeah, <laughs> she's a really good hunter. And then, uh, and then, he, then Richard is kind of like, mal- like bummed out. He's like, "You could kill her." And then the Marquis says, "I will if there are no other alternatives, but I would hate to remove an option before it was entirely necessary." Anyway, death is so final, isn't it? And then Richard goes, "Is it?" <laughs> and then yeah, the Marquis so sometimes said the Marquis, <laughs> and then they go down. And that's the end of that chapter. Now we're on to chapter sixteen. Whoop. They are walking for hours. They reach the end of the stairs. And arrive at a labyrinth. There's a reference to King Bran the Blessed, who is a king of Britain and Welsh lore. And then there's also a reference to... A real king? Uh, no. Okay. 
and there may have at some point been a king Bran or something like that, but the Bran the Blessed is a king in Welsh lore specifically. What is Welsh lore? Sorry. Uh, so Wales uh-huh. is one of the several countries that make up the United Kingdom, oh, okay. and they have their own lore from their culture. Oh, and it's called Welsh. Okay. The and then they also there's also uh, in that same sentence a reference to Gog and Magog, which are different uh, religious references. There's Gog and Magog are referenced in the Bible a couple times, and then referenced in Jewish or in Judaism. And then, but he in the book, Richard is thinking he talks about Gog and Magog the giants, which are a story in like English folklore or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, no, no, it just doesn't make any sense uh, because Gog and Magog aren't themselves anything, at least that I could find a uh, an actual story. There is there is a giant in English lore called Gog Magog. Just combining <laughs> yeah, the just two. The, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, but the Gog and Magog are things that exist in different religions mm-hmm. uh, history. And so I think, or at least in what I could find as well and what other people have decided has happened, was that they just got referenced together because mm-hmm. they were so similar in name. Um, and they, so they, they get mixed up sometimes when, in fact... Now somebody has decided to come out and say that, or some you know linguist says, uh, historian says that Gog Magog, the the single giant mm-hmm. in the English history or in lore or whatever, is actually a corruption of a different like Welsh word or something like that. Okay. And so, the the book or the writing is inaccurate for what the legend is trying to reference is, but it's accurate in. It's inaccuracy, which <laughs> I just go. thought was really interesting. Yeah, that's funny. That it was right about being wrong. <laughs> um, so uh, Gog and Magog, that's not like David and Goliath, right? It was that dude's no. name, Goliath? Yeah. Oh, well, that's lame. Okay. <laughs> I was hoping it was Gog the Goliath or something. In the Bible, Gog and Magog are things that we don't know what they are. We don't know that they're people or places or one of each. Giants building a gate. No, not in the Bible. <laughs> um, there's the first time that it gets referenced is uh, in a book in the um, the uh, I guess it's the Torah in Jewish or in Judaism, and then it's also referenced in the uh, Book of Revelation, where after Satan uh, finishes his thousand years imprisonment, he'll return to the world and you know deceive it. It says something like. Satan will deceive the four corners of the world, comma, Gog and Magog, uh, and raise an army to fight, you know, the armies of heaven or whatever. But there's never any explanation as to what Gog and Magog are as far as the Bible goes. It just, like, references it, and, you know, obviously those things were written forever ago, so the it, there's no way to, you know, dig back and find everything. This is weird. A thousand years doesn't sound that long uh, well, for so, an immortal. Yeah, but, so, we don't know when the thousand years started necessarily mm-hmm. or ended necessarily. Um, and the end of the thousand years doesn't necessarily mean that at that end, that's when the apocalypse happens. Oh, okay. He's going to take his time to deceive everything and build up his deal because uh, several hundred years is nothing for uh, an immortal to figure out how he's going to overthrow, you know, whatever. I mean, they were living to like 900 in the New Testament. So it's just like in the Old Testament. That's what I meant. And, and the, <laughs> what's the first book? Genesis. Yeah, in Genesis. Yeah, Adam and Eve lived like for like 8 million years, years old yeah, or whatever. 
And then even after that, several generations lived for a very long time, according yeah. to you know the books. But in, enough about the Bible. <laughs> yeah, we're going down a wormhole. Yeah, or a rabbit hole is the actual phrase. The so. Um, so yeah, they're traveling down, and then they see a gate. So this yeah, gate marks the end of Down Street and the beginning of the labyrinth. And beyond the labyrinth waits Angel Islington, and in the la- in the labyrinth is the Beast. Um, and so, I don't understand, said Richard. Islington, I actually met him. It. Him. He's an angel. I mean, a real angel. The Marquis smiled without humor. When angels go bad, Richard, they go worse than anyone. Remember, Lucifer used to be an angel. Sorry, I tried to do a raspy voice because he got his throat slit. No. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So they're still talking. Um, Mm -hmm. They're talking about the beasts, like with the, you know, the excerpt that you just took, and getting around the labyrinth. Hunter talks about how they can't navigate the labyrinth without Islington's token, uh, and then that's when Carabas shows the one that he took from Portico study, which apparently he didn't lose that when the sewer folk took everything from his corpse. He had that one in a in a butt pocket, probably <laughs> the prison pocket. Um, the prison pocket. But uh, you know, I, there was one little thing that I wanted to point out right before that. Richard tells uh, the Marquis that he has been having dreams of the Beast, and the Marquis raises an eyebrow. What kind of dreams? And then Richard says bad ones. But anyway, the Marquis didn't know that he was dreaming about the Beast. Yeah, Richard and, hadn't told anybody about yeah. it. Yeah, and then uh, I don't also, think he knew. Any, he didn't. I think that this is the first time that we he, that Richard hears about the Beast. Yeah. Okay. So Richard hadn't known what he was dreaming about, and then uh, also to the Marquis, he uh, the Marquis thought about this, eyes flickering, and then he said, "Look, Richard, I'm taking Hunter." But if you want to wait here, well, no one could accuse you of cowardice. Richard shook his head. Sometimes there's nothing you can do. I'm not turning back. Not now. They've got Dora. They go into the labyrinth using the token that Carabas managed to hold on to because of plot. They jump to door. They're navigating the labyrinth, avoiding the beast. The token works by sort of vibrating in the direction that you're supposed to go. And apparently wards off the beast as well. There's a short interaction where Carabas, oh not Carabas, I'm sorry, where Croup is kind of visibly unsure about what's going on, uh, and Dora kind of picks up on it, and so then starts kind of like teasing him about it, trying to you know just get under his skin and hopefully create a well, we you know assumedly create an, an avenue for escape. Mm-hmm. A part of that dialogue where she says something like, "What are you? So what are you even scheming to do right now? Are you going to kidnap Islington and me for whatever your next thing is?" Yeah, and what then, are you planning now to kidnap Islington, sell us both to the highest bidder? Quiet," said Mister Vandemar. But Mister Crook simply chuckled. And Dor knew then that the Angel Islington was not her friend. So now she's realized that Islington is a bad dude. A baddie. Um, potentially, I mean, it doesn't give us her full thoughts, but she knows that much. Mm-hmm. So she can, we can assume that she now knows that she, he's, it, is the uh, the hiring party. And then we cut to Islington, who is singing. Oh, well, she starts calling for the Beast uh, to scare him and try to get the Beast to kill yeah, him. Yeah, she starts and shouting. They and they gag her. And they had the really, this really weird line about how Mr. Vandemar used a handkerchief from the 1820s. To, yeah. To, it was just successful. <laughs> such, such a bizarre amount of time describing that. I know. 
Uh, <laughs> Sorry, yeah, and then Angel Islington was just jamming out in his halls. He's really having a great yeah, day. Yeah, he's got the radio up. It's good stuff. <laughs> and he's cleaning, getting ready for the party to begin. Then he goes to Richard having a mental diary. So now I was wrong. That. <laughs> uh, he does one more mental diary, <laughs> right. but it is completely pointless. He can't even string two words together. It seems like he loses his train of thought several times, and then is, it even says metaphors failed him, and he had gone beyond the world of metaphor and simile into a place of things that are. And it was changing him. <laughs> so. While they're traveling, Carabas is holding up the, the token. And they talk about it a little bit. As they talk about it, Carabas ends up dropping it into a marsh that they're walking through. He can't bend down to find it where he dropped it because he's got to keep his crossbow trained on Hunter. And he just stepped on a rib cage that was yeah, that's what makes so him he drop wounded it. himself. So. And so then he's like, Richard, come up and find it because mm-hmm. uh, i got to watch Hunter. And so then Richard's trying to find it. He finds it, but the marsh swallows it. So then, of course, because this is how plot goes, uh, as they lose it, the beast shows up. Yeah. And uh, uh, Hunter's like, hell yeah, that's what we've been waiting for. So she goes and she grabs the spear that Richard, you know, left laying or standing in the Yeah, I don't know why you'd do him. that, but whatever. <laughs> well, he had to get, like, down and in uh, mud okay, and like, yeah, try yeah. to find the thing. So she, she goes over, picks up the spear... And is like, all right, I'm going to fucking kill this thing because that's all she wants. Ooh, can I read this real quick? Yeah. So when the beast comes up, there's this really cool, this is probably the coolest line I thought about how epic the beast was. So just imagine the biggest, baddest boar, like how they described it kind of earlier. And then uh, here, right before it meets them, it says, it stared at them and it paused for a hundred years, which transpired in a dozen heartbeats. Just that, to me, I can I can completely put myself in that situation. I've definitely been in some situations where it's like that felt like forever, and I know it was just like a quick glance or whatever, you know. Right. And it was just this beast was staring him down with some freaking hockey, you know. This one, one piece, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> An anime I haven't seen. But, well, I've uh, seen some of it back. Then. Oh, we've talked about this. <laughs> I've seen that show, and I just don't fucking get it. Yeah, <laughs> I can't so, get into that thing. Anyway, the uh, the beast charges. Um, you explain it. Well, you did a better job, I thought, in the demo. Or, sorry, our practice run of the, of the, of <laughs> yeah, the beast. Yeah, going through the notes. The beast charges. Hunter is all about it, ready to fight the boar, the beast, the thing, and loses. She lunges at it, realizes that she's too late, and then the boar gores her and then takes off. She loses exactly how Richard loses in every single dream he has. Just a second too late with this spear. Yeah. And, uh, and he gets just, gored by the Yeah, tusk. and then he gets gored. Yeah, and, and that's he, what happens to Hunter. At this time, we cut to Dora's group. They have reached the end of the labyrinth. Croup is visibly happy that they've gotten through it because he was uh, definitely afraid of the beast. Yes. <laughs> Never admittedly, but we could tell with the description. Oh, yeah. Um, so they get to it and they uh, enter. They, they talk to Islington through a mirror that he's got like on the front door. Yeah, mirror, and, mirror uh, on the wall. They're like, hey, we got every thing and he's like all right cool come in and so they go in and then we cut back to richard's group richard and the gang uh hunter's down they're they're talking richard or i'm sorry not richard hunter tells richard to take the spear he's like nah i can't you know what do you want me to do blah blah blah. hunter's like well i can't do it i'm pretty hurt she stands up and she does this weird thing where she starts humming to find the resonance of the passageway I thought that was really cool, to be honest with you. Yeah, at first I didn't really get it, but then on the second read-through, I was like, oh, okay, she's finding the right frequency that she should shout at to make sure that the beast hears. Mm. So she finds the note, shouts at that note, I guess, and uh, for the beast to come, the beast acquiesces, and then it charges. 
as she's so she's letting herself be the distraction this whole time in getting up and talking she's saying like i did a really bad thing and now i'm going to atone so she's sacrificing herself so that richard has a chance to lunge with the spear yeah this time there could be no room for mistakes the dance thought hunter the dance is not yet over as the beast came toward her its horns lowered she shouted now richard strike under and up now before the beast hit her and her words turned into a wordless scream so Richard stabs, gets it, nails it, the beast dies. Yeah, the beast was so close he could smell the shit and blood animal stench of it. So close he could feel its warmth. And Richard stabbed with his spear as hard as he could, pushing up into its side and letting it sink in. And then boom, the boar's dead. Yeah, boar's dead. Dies on top <laughs> of Hunter. Boar's um, head. So then Richard goes to try to help Hunter. He doesn't, you know, in the way that he's been this whole time. Uh, sort of naive and unused to death, doesn't want Hunter to die despite everything that's happened. But Hunter's dying. And as she gives him her, her knife, she rewards him with her knife. Yeah, it says, you're the warrior. You are the greatest hunter in London below now because he killed the boar. Yeah, um, so clean, off my, or clean my blood off her. Mustn't rust the blade. A hunter always looks after her weapons. She gulped there. Now, touch the beast's blood to your eyes and tongue. <laughs> Richard did not like the sound of that. Yeah. <laughs> and then the Marquis like, no, do it. <laughs> yeah, for whatever reason, they know that this is what you have to do to navigate the labyrinth. I assume it's some fun hunter magic that if there were a series to this uh, world, we'd probably learn about. But uh, yeah, I like to I think could, it's some... I could guess that it's probably, yeah, like a, a known thing. Uh, not necessarily like a hunter spell, but hunters know that if a, you can learn a beast's lair by taking some of it into you that's cool. in effect or something like that that's the only thing i can assume because they both are just like yeah obviously you do that rich what's wrong with you <laughs> <laughs> so he does it and carabas is like go ahead i you know I, I can't move very quickly but you now that you know the way you can get there and get there a lot quicker yeah richard's worried about hunt, leaving hunter's body but um carabas is like well what are we gonna do yeah, we're not gonna <laughs> take, take it, it with us? so uh, we'll, we'll yeah. figure it out later yeah. So Richard takes off. He's traveling by himself, uh, reaches the end of the labyrinth. When he gets there, for whatever reason, the doors are already unlocked or they respond to him. So he enters Eilington's halls. And that's yeah, the end Rich of chapter 16. Yeah, it sounds like Richard just like leveled up and is now super Richard. <laughs> super <laughs> so, Richard, yeah. By chapter just 17. Just that beast blood. Beast blood. Gave him some extra XP. Mm -hmm. Chapter 17. Richard's walking through Eilington's halls, goes to the room where everybody's at. There's uh, some discussion about Dor not being cooperative and how Richard would be great for torturing to get Dor to talk. Eilington says that someone else is here. Croup, go find out who it is. So at this point, we now know that the door probably wasn't just unlocked. They, Eilington was like, all right, Richard's here. Uh, I'll open up the door and he can come in. Oh, uh, okay, yeah. Um, so, um, so Mr. Vandemar broke Richard's finger. And just to try and influence Dor into being more cooperative, because uh, they knew they couldn't torture Dor into doing it. And then, yeah, that's when Islington's like, there's somebody yeah, outside. There's a lot of, during this discussion, there's a lot of sort of reinforcing some of the opinions that I have about Islington, where he's not evil. He's just corrupted himself with his revenge, which mm -hmm. we'll find out some more about it a little bit later. But yeah. he's got a goal that he's let himself be corrupted by. But he's still like, he can't say that they're going to torture Dora. He has to stop himself. Like, he can't stomach it almost. Mm -hmm. And anytime Krupp and Vandemar are talking about it or like anything like that, he like turns away, doesn't yeah. look at them or anything like that or like stops them and is like, but enough of that. We're going to talk about something else. I've got something else I want to say. Yeah. So like, 
he's definitely still an angel. He's just got some corrupted ideals that he wants to follow. Yeah. Uh, but anyways, so then Kara, or Croup uh, goes off to find out who it is that's at the door, where we cut to Carabas, who's right. standing outside trying to figure out what, what the fuck to do. He's trying to come up with like a million different schemes, but nothing is good enough. He knows that he doesn't really have anything given his current state. Except so, for surprise yeah. that's on his side. That's the only trick. He said at least he thought, slightly cheered, he had surprise on his side. That was until he felt the cold point of a sharp knife placed on the side of his throat and he heard Mr. Croup's oily voice whispering in his ear. I already killed you once today, it was saying. What does it take to teach some people? I like that. I already killed you once today, it was saying. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I because mean, he never saw Mr. Croup because Croup just like vanished uh, from our previous perspective and then just appears because he has some teleportation thing that they've now referenced a couple of times yeah i just i just like they that always he's, say a uh, shimmer was in the in, world and oh, then he was gone that's go. how they always word it i just like that he thought it <laughs> you know like it's not even a dude <laughs> yeah because he like yeah he never hears croup's voice he just hears or no, he doesn't he never sees croup is what i meant to say he just suddenly hears croup's voice and so his only point of reference is it interesting so then we cut back to Richard, who has been chained up, and I believe Door's chained up still, too? Yeah, Door's yeah. still chained up. Yeah, so Richard and Door are now chained up, and then uh, the or sorry, Mr. Croup brings in the Marquis. Islington's like, I thought you killed him, and they're like, we did, and you know, just like some, <laughs> yeah. some back and forth about all that stuff. So then now is a bunch of dialogue. Uh, this is uh, a big I... exposition scene as there often is before the major climax, where everything sort of gets revealed and explained, some answers are given, and then the big event will happen. So that's what we're in right now. Yeah. The pain in Richard's hand showed no indication of subsiding. How can you, be how can you behave like this? He asked angrily. You're an angel. And then the Marquis goes, What did I tell you, Richard? And Richard thought, You said Lucifer was an angel. Islington smiled superciliously. Lucifer, it said. Lucifer was an idiot. It wound up lord and master of nothing at all. So it's like, not only are they similar, but uh, Islington finds himself, itself, much above <laughs> the silly, stupid Lucifer. We learn, too, that uh, Islington is at fault for sinking Atlantis. I don't think that he's at fault for the sinking. He's the at fault for not doing enough to prevent it. There's still, so they, they talk about that. The Marquis grinned, and you wound up lord and master of two thugs and a room full of candles, in response to him talking about Lucifer. And then that's when we go into this discussion about Atlantis. The angel licked its lips. They told me it was my punishment for Atlantis. I told them there was nothing more I could have done. The whole affair was, and then he paused, regrettable. Or unfortunate, is what he said. So there's, so Atlantis sunk, and it seemed to be a result of something that happened, which we never get an answer for. And yeah. Islington just didn't do enough to stop it. Well, I don't know, man, because right here, um, so it says Islington claps his hands and he said, these things happen. And the Marquis like, of course they do. Cities sink every day and you had nothing to do it. It was as if the lid had been pulled off something dark and writhing, a place of derangement and fury and utter viciousness. And in a time of scary things, it was the most frightening thing Richard had seen. The angel's serene beauty cracked. Its eyes flashed, and it screamed at them, crazy, scary, and uncontrolled, utterly certain in its rightness. They deserved it. I think that, so at least what I think that happened, my interpretation of this whole interaction, is that whatever it was that caused Atlantis to sink was part of some 
either single or series of transgressions against Islington as well. Probably. And so whenever it was coming up, Islington maybe saw his opportunity to prevent the island from sinking. It was like, no, fuck you guys. You deserve this. Oh, okay. And so... Maybe, yeah. I guess, like, with God and fucking Noah's Ark, he's like, bye. <laughs> you guys <laughs> suck. Noah and his family are pretty right. good. You know, I guess... I, yeah, that, and that's what I think. And then also with what we were just mentioning, where he's still an angel. Like, he can't talk about the torture. He's right. still, like, kind of uh, inertly... He's not inertly good, but he's just not evil. Mm-hmm. Um, he's just angry at being imprisoned because he doesn't think that he was wrong in letting the Atlanteans get what he believes they deserved. Mm-hmm. Um, while he may have been looking over the island, they were pissing him off for whatever reason. And then something that they did led to their island sinking, and he just didn't stop it. Gotcha. That's the way that I see it, at least. I, I don't know. The way I interpreted it was... Um... I guess, I guess in the back of my mind, I might have assumed that they had something against him or he didn't like something they were doing, you know? But it made it seem like he was totally into it and maybe had mm-hmm. a hand in it, if not doing it himself. I mean, he I think definitely he having a hand in it would be not doing anything, you yeah. know? But uh, I, I see what you're saying. I, I just took it as a more uh, attack rather than yeah. a... Uh, and in, in the light of the way that I see it, him like losing it there and saying they deserved it is him... like. Like, losing it, because how many times do I have to fucking say <laughs> oh, this? Oh, I see. Okay, you know, okay. They deserved it. They did this and blah, 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 blah. So he, like, loses his composure for a bit because he's so over having to try and defend himself. Uh, to the point where he's now, like we already mentioned, corrupted himself. And his, his idea is to go take over heaven and show them, you know, give them what now he thinks they deserve. I gotcha. So it's all about, even if he's wrong, he believes that he's without fault. He believes, yeah, yeah. I mean, just like Hitler believed what he was doing was good for you. Yeah, Germany. I mean, you never think you're the bad guy, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. You never think you're the bad guy unless you're in a story and described as actually evil. Yeah. <laughs> like, only demons know that they're actually demons. Yeah, they seem into it, though. Um, <laughs> uh, so, Dor ends up speaking up in part of this conversation, and she said, then why did you have us killed? Islington answers, not all of you. So it alludes to there being some of Dor's family... Maybe one person, maybe multiple of the Door family, uh, still alive. Um, yeah, we don't know and who, this is but, where uh, earlier we made a in, in a previous episode. I can't remember how far back it was now, but we made a prediction that her younger sister was probably still alive mm-hmm. because they alluded to it then as well. Yeah, so that's what we can assume it is here. So then, this is basically the end of all the exposition. Ellington's like, "All right, so are you gonna open the door?" And then they. And then Richard's like, what do you, you think she's going to open the door after everything you've done to her? Yeah, she's and got then, more resolve than that. Yeah, and then Krupa's like, tells Vanamar to go start torturing Richard because that's the key to getting Dor to cooperate. Right. Oh, there was a little scene too right in the middle of that where Dor was like, my father told me I could trust you. What oh, happened? Oh yeah, we totally skipped that. And, Let's uh, go back to that. And then, uh, so at that point we learned that Krupa and Vandemar had tampered with the diary. I think it was a video diary that, that, that her dad left, Portico. Mm-hmm. And... I can't do Portico's voice, but Vandemar does a perfect imitation of uh, Portico's voice. And uh, he says what was actually in the video. And it was, Door, child, fear Islington. Islington's got to be behind all of this. It's dangerous. Door, keep away from it. Yeah. <laughs> and so then that's when we find out, uh, or at least the you know we can suspect as much whenever they the they're sleeping and Door has that dream and she realizes that she's kind of upset about where who put away the diary because we had to find it right yeah dad um, wouldn't have put it so, away yeah, yeah <laughs> after he died 
So no, yeah, <laughs> after he died. <laughs> so this is you know where it becomes fully revealed that it was Crippen Vandemar. They edited the diary and then mm-hmm. they put it back to be hidden. Those guys are smart. Yeah, which, they seem uh, to have some technological skills that I could not even begin to understand. <laughs> like, how did they change the video diary? Right, but uh, the uh, so then so yeah, hurt him some more, Mister Vandemar. Cut off his ear. Vandemar starts to do that uh, for a second. Richard thinks he can maybe take it. But then whenever it actually starts, just starts screaming. And so then Dora immediately says, stop it, I'll open the door. Yeah, see, I originally thought that uh, Mr. Vandemar had cut Richard's ear off. But here at the end, Will showed me that uh, it says, then Mr. Vandemar put a little pressure on the knife and Richard began to scream immediately after it's a door goes, stop them, said Dora, I'll open your door. Yeah. Because while Krupp and Vandemar are certainly capable of just taking someone's ear off in one go, that's not torture. Yeah, just in my mind, I thought it was just like a razor-sharp blade, so I was thinking a hot knife through butter, just slicing up through Richard's ear, and I figured mm-hmm. it was kind of a Fred and George Weasley kind of... Which one lost their ear? Fred, right? George. Fred. Fred lost his ear. <laughs> I'm going to stick <laughs> to Fred. I certainly don't know. If I'm wrong, you uh, call me out. Uh... Tweet at me. Tell, tell or tweet at us. Tell him. Tell me I'm wrong. Jordan. <laughs> Jordan is wrong. But yeah, I, I think I, it, I think it was Fred because the long name kid is left for whatever reason in my mind. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Yeah. A different book. <laughs> Ellington uh, releases Doors manacles. hand manacles so that she can move about. Gives her back the key to open up the door. Door goes and reveals the keyhole. Enters or puts the key into the keyhole and begins to open it. Don't do it. Don't set it free. We don't matter, called Richard. Actually, said the Marquis, I matter very much. <laughs> but I but I have to agree, don't do it. <laughs> That's easily the Marquis' best line. Yeah, that was the best. <laughs> but um, uh, yeah, she put so the key in the keyhole and started opening it. And it's taking forever. It's like super heavy, um, which we find out why it's super heavy. Yeah. She's pulling it open. As she's pulling it open, Eilington's preparing to leave, to go back to heaven and take over. Makes a funny comment about how he's going to start with Gabriel. and But also, too, in the meantime, Richard and the Marquis are talking to Krupp and Vandemar, and they're like, hey, are you going to let him go without paying you guys yet? I mean, and then uh, Krupp has a funny little line where he says, the 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 corpses to be have a point. <laughs> Sir, it might be wise for you to settle up before you commence the next stage of your travels. And anyway, I just thought it was kind of funny. Yeah, <laughs> there is some funny back and forth there between them all as they're sort of realizing, oh wait, he's leaving without paying us. What's going on? Yeah. And then they're like egging them on to go. Try yeah, to... like go figure that out, guys. The, you can kill us later. <laughs> the, one that, the one that I like from that uh, section is whenever they're, Eilington's uh, like, don't, he just doesn't care because he never mm-hmm. intended to pay them anything. Mm-hmm. But he's like just trying to like placate them to get them to shut up so he can continue. He's like, whenever I have my throne, you'll have whatever, blah, blah, blah. And then Richard's like, jam tomorrow, eh? Yeah. Don't like jam, said Mr. Vandemar. Makes me belch. <laughs> this is goofy. Yeah, so they're, then, they're funny. <laughs> so then they're walking over towards Islington, trying to confront him about the pay. And then that's when Dora finishes opening the door. And uh, it's an explosion of light uh, because it's a star or an event horizon, something space-y. There's yeah. a void there. Richard squinted his eyes and turned his head away from the glare, all vicious orange and retinal purple. Is that what heaven looks like? It seems more like hell. And then he felt the wind. The The wind pulls through. It's the void of space. So it's yeah. a vacuum is what it is. It yeah. doesn't describe it as a vacuum, but it's pretty evident that's what yeah. it is. As uh, everything is starting to get sucked in, Richard, Carabas, and Dor are held by their chains, so they're okay, at least for the moment. 
Allington grabs a pillar as he gets sucked by. Vandemar grasps a, uh, a table leg, and then Kroop grabs Vandemar. I just figured door was okay because she's probably hiding behind the door. <laughs> her, her feet are still Oh, uh, there we go. Okay, that makes more sense. While they're all being like sucked and holding on to whatever it is that they have, uh, Allington's screaming about how it's not heaven. Uh, door says it wasn't the real key that she used, and it was a copy that she had had the hammersmith make at the market. But it opened the door, screamed the angel. No, said the girl with the opal eyes distantly. I opened a door, as far and hard away as I could. I opened a door. That was a really cool line. <laughs> She's just like, I got you. <laughs> Allington begins to plead with Dora to close the door, says her sister is still alive. The angel can't hold on, though, and is sucked through. Krupp is crawling up Vandemar towards Dor, talking about killing her, finishing the job. Oh, yeah, because they got stuck, actually, in the yeah. door because they're holding on to Yeah, the to table leg that they're table. holding on breaks off and gets wedged in the door, and then he's like, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to finish the job, blah, blah, blah. Uh, but then Vandemar's coat gives way, and so Krupp falls into Flies the star. Flies off into the void. Vandemar shrugs and lets go, <laughs> just uh, yeah. following Krupp. Bye-bye, he said, and let go of the table leg. And then a little line that Richard thinks, uh, it made sort of sense, Richard thought. They were a team, after all. <laughs> you know? <laughs> the air is running out uh, in the room, the building, the labyrinth, the bottom of Down Street. Richard is about to pass out. Somehow the door closes. Well, we don't know why. I, th- I thought door closed it. Nah. It doesn't say that she does. Oh, really? The door just closes, and then oh. Richard can hear door talking. Uh, she says she has like a line about, or no, not even her. She doesn't start it. Carabas is like, "How did you? Wh- where did you open that door to? What was that?" And Dora just thinks it says just a, a, as far as I could. Yeah, I don't know. Literally as far in a way as I yeah, could. Yeah, there's no explanation about how the door closed. Maybe ultimately the void was able to suck the doors closed as well. That's kind of what I was thinking. That's after the only you said that door that didn't... I can figure out. But I could have sworn door closed it, but I, I could have just made that up in my head. Doesn't matter. Yeah. Uh, either matter. way, the door gets closed, and uh, so then door ends up uh, releasing her chains, and then goes to Carabas and Richard to release theirs. Yeah, and everyone's pooped out. Asleep. Yeah, everyone's pooped and takes a nap. End Quick. of the chapter. Yeah, end of the chapter. Chapter eighteen's next. Quick baseball update: We're at the end of the third, and the Red Sox lead the Yankees three to zero. That's good, right? You like the Red Sox? We just determined that. It is good. I'm also way more afraid of the Astros playing the Yankees than I am the Red Sox. Oh, there we go. Perfect. It's a win-win. <laughs> all right, chapter 18, my favorite shortest chapter. It's all about Lady Serpentine. Yeah, really nothing happens. It's a description of the people that Serpentine is walking through the labyrinth with and their journey through the labyrinth. They come upon the beast's corpse, they collect Hunter's corpse, and they also collect the spear, and then they disappear. Yeah, This. Uh, so it does say, too, this is the farthest away from home that uh, Serpentine... Serpentine, however you say it. Um, this is the furthest away from home that she had ever been in a long time. She brings the spear, which sounds like a win in her book. She loses Hunter, who she seemed to be almost in love with, if not have just strong feelings for yeah. a, a love of maybe kinship, you know, rather than necessarily in love. But it definitely seemed really lustful. Yeah, it did. She was kind of first talking. Yeah, they were, she was touching all over Hunter. But anyway, uh, the last sentence of this uh, of this little chapter, chapter eighteen, was. The lamplight flickered on Serpentine's ravaged face as she walked, but it revealed no emotion of any kind, neither happy nor sad. So that's, I think, how she's just coping. She's just can't even express any emotion. <laughs> you know, then, I, you know, I've been there. I know how to cope like that, yeah. too. <laughs> well, I think she's also 
a character that's sort of beyond humanity. Mm-hmm. I can assume that she's been alive for a really long time, and yeah. she's probably dealt with similar things before. And so this is just another another day in her very long life. And doesn't it say that she's the second oldest of the seven sisters? I thought she was the oldest, but then later it seems like it says that she's the second oldest. I don't know. I didn't uh, pay attention to that little detail if it does show it. Yeah, well, it doesn't really matter. She's old, and we know know it, so... Um, yeah, that's the end. Is literally that's, that's a, the whole uh, chapter eighteen, it's a two-page, like, one-page chapter. So on to nineteen. Chapter nineteen. Richard wakes up in the Abbey of the Blackfriars. Richard is asking the monk that's with him some stuff, but the guy that's with him doesn't have a whole lot of answers. It's just like you're in the you're in the Abbey of the Blackfriars. You we uh, took care of you, and then the abbot shows up. Yeah, the abbot shows up on the arm of Brother Fuliginus. You can't. Stop talking about him. He's the right. reason we got it. <laughs> so then Richard uh, starts walking with the abbot, looking uh, for Dor, or the abbot's taking Richard to Dor. They go to where Dor has been hanging out in her room, and she's reading Mansfield Park, the book that she was reading at Richard's apartment. Yeah, Richard is almost positive that they didn't have that book at the uh, the Friars' place. So but they didn't know they had. Oh, that they book didn't know they had it. it. Well, in the same way said... that he didn't know he had that book until oh, she found it at his place. So she place. just probably opens yeah. the door and keeps it in her library. Maybe. <laughs> she's just in, the, just in the middle of reading that book. Right. Never gets a chance to finish it. She's so busy. Carabas gets wheeled in on a wheelchair. They all go to a room to talk. It spends a little while explaining how badass he looks coming in on a wheelchair too, which right. I don't know if that happens super often, but <laughs> it's just sort of like a and and I've seen this sort of like description for other characters of Carabas's style where they're mm-hmm. kind of just like effortless effortlessly cool or even full effort cool. Like they mm-hmm. put a lot of effort into being cool or whatever. Because it says something like he wasn't sure how Carabas managed to make being wheeled in on a wheelchair, um, romantic and exactly um, romantic and swashbuckling. Swashbuckling, yeah. Yeah, the marquis honored them with an enormous smile. Good evening, friends. He said, right. which I, <laughs> I, I really liked that. That was yeah. he's just like we are now friends. <laughs> it is sort of like the the perfect uh, reminder of how cool, or not even cool, but the sort of uh, general way that the marquee carries himself because we're at the now the end of the story mm-hmm. and this is effectively the last time that we see the marquee before the end of the book so it's just another um sort of like whenever frodo wakes up at the end of the movies and everybody enters the door in the epitome of their character style like gimli walks in and is like ho 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 the hobbits <laughs> rushed in and they're all like little giddy children everyone walks in like and all 60. just like yeah <laughs> Aragorn walks in and he's just like, cool. He's just like, yeah, I'm glad that you're alive. You know, that sort of stuff. It's just the definition of their characters being revisited because we're done with the story. Uh, so, so yeah, and they go into the other room to talk. There's uh, some more answers about, you know, how everything transpired after they passed out in the room uh, in Islington's halls. Yeah, Richard starts to ask everybody. He's like, so what happens now? Like, door... You wanted to figure out what happened to your yeah, family, you and thing. now we did that. And then the Marquis, you got Marquis. what you wanted, and he's like, yeah, yeah I got what I wanted. his deal and gets a new favor from yeah, Dor. Yeah, exactly. So investments on favors, and then he's like, but now, me, like, what do I do? And Dor and the Marquis are like, well, you did a great job, man. Like, you're with us now. You're part of the team. You got you got some status. And he's and like, that's not good like, enough. <laughs> right. And the Abbot's like, oh, and there's a, um, there's a, where the Marquis is like, what do you think this is? The Wizard of Oz? You can't right. just go back or whatever. Yeah. Which is funny because then it 
what the abbot then reveals is a Wizard of Ozian sort of thing where yeah. Richard clicks his heels and goes home. Basically. The, um, the, but the abbot's like, you are all very stupid people. Yeah. <laughs> and you don't know anything. This is the key to, this is the key to all reality. Yeah, Richard passed, passed the ordeal of the key. He is its master until it returns to our keeping. The key has power. <laughs> it's the key to heaven, said Richard. The old man's voice was deep and melodious. The key is the key to all reality. If Richard wants to return to London above, then the key will take him back to London above. As I like to call boring London. Boring London, not cool London. Yeah, not not cool London. So the key is the Ruby Slippers analog. Back to boring yeah. old London. The the key will take you back if you so wish, which is the you know same reveal that happens in The Wizard of Oz, which is why I assume he uses that reference for the Marquis to say, the, the shoes will take you wherever you want to go yeah. if you want to. If you, if you wish it enough, you will get it. If you really believe. Cut ahead for uh, for some indeterminate amount of time, I guess, for everybody to sort of heal up and then to put Richard's clothes back together. Yeah, they fix his clothes and Richard heals up and then... So at this point, he's just going through a full circle gauntlet of characters. We so we see old Bailey who gives him a feather. We He gets on the Earl's train, gets knighted by the Earl... It almost seems like he says, it gives a little flashback while he's waiting on the train um, to like, it almost seems like he's already said goodbye to Dor. At least from my perspective, it seemed like he had already said goodbye to Dor. Like, I guess he doesn't need her anymore. But uh, it was like when Richard had asked Dor, she said that she didn't know but uh, why the Marquis didn't say goodbye. But maybe goodbyes were something else, like comforting people, at which the Marquis wasn't much good. Then she told him that she had something in her eye and she gave him a paper with his instructions on it and she ran away. So... I mean, Dor can go anywhere she wants to. She can just open a door there, but... Uh, right, and Dor it, knows that she's going to see him in a bit. Okay, but Because see, she knows her role. See, I didn't. So, in my <laughs> mind, I was like, I think that this is goodbye forever. What a lame goodbye in a fucking memory. Right, <laughs> you know, yeah. not even, like, literally the goodbye. But, uh... I think it's a device to make the final meeting with them that much more meaningful yeah that's a, it's good a device point. to sort of trick us into thinking well i guess that was it jesus what was that all about and then yeah. she shows up and they can have a more personal longer mm-hmm. meeting that's a you know a bit more meaningful to the reader as the first one in the gauntlet that he meets is old bailey who gives him a super dope feather a long black feather with a blue purple green sheen to it yeah red thread had been wound around the quill end of the feather it's a totally pointless meeting it's just for us to see old bailey again not pointless uh, dude he gets a feather that he loses later and yeah, doesn't care no, about. No, he didn't lose it. He drops it and says whatever. It's like his. It's like his totem in uh, in uh, what you call it uh, Inception. We can go over that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> the um, so um, gets on the Earl's train, gets knighted by the Earl, mm-hmm. uh, gets dropped off at a station where he passes Lord Ratspeaker, who gives him all his stuff back. Yeah, Richard uh, is not fucking amused because yeah, Lord Ratspeaker is an asshole, and then also when they're talking. Uh, just to say, the anesthesia girl, no hard feelings. The rats are your friends still, and the rat speakers. You come to us, we'll do you all right. Thanks, said Richard. And then in his mind, anesthesia will take him, he thought. She's expendable. So he's like, he's kind of bitter. He's like, these fucking rat people don't care about each other. Why would they care about me? Yeah. Or at the very least, Lord Ratsbeaker doesn't care about his subjects. Yeah, that that's um, almost worse. But uh, the, uh, and then he he's continuing to just walk through you know all this scenery and stuff like that. Yeah, Richard got all his stuff back on the runs into uh, Lamia and her coven. Uh, gets a little bit scared, but Lamia's just being a tease. 
Yeah, as she's been from the beginning. Yeah. I still like her, Lemia's even though best. she's evil. Yeah, she's great. <laughs> I love Lamia, but that's just because I love vampires, and I want well, to Well, she's the only reason we got back to Islington, too, because nobody knew where to start. <laughs> I mean, right. Hunter might have known, because she was the, the the Patsy, but... Or not the Patsy, she was the the. She the was mole. in. Yeah, It but... was probably just a matter of how... If we assume that Hunter knows where Islington is but isn't supposed to know where Islington is without betraying her position. She's trying to figure out, how do I get us to get to the right spot? And then Lamia is a convenient way for us to get there without she, revealing the betrayal until the needed moment. Yeah, she's definitely like a, a chess player with her moves. She thinks like five steps ahead, like a couple, uh, like I think last podcast, she was thinking like four different ways on how she could get her and Dor out of this situation. One with uh, minimal injury to her, <laughs> and one and a low success right, rate, yeah. you know, and the maximum injury to her, complete success at getting Dora, you know, is is just funny listening, going in her mind and calculating it like that. Uh, but then Richard finds himself on a hill outside of London three thousand years ago. At, at this point, Dora approaches. She they have an interaction. Uh, she's pleading with Richard to not go. She really likes him. Richard says, "I really like you." You mind if I read a line from that? Go for it. Okay. Uh, she paused. And then, all in a rush, blurted, You've been quite a really good friend to me, Richard, and I've sort of got quite to like having you around. Please don't go. <laughs> and then Richard kind of says the same thing. I've sort of got to quite like having you around, too. <laughs> so it's like, why do you guys say it like that? But anyway, it was just funny. It's they so like English. each other. It sucks they have to say goodbye, but Richard says, I don't belong here. Like, I gotta go home. And, you know, uh, then we won't ever see each other again, she said. I suppose we won't. And then uh, Richard walks and... Uh, Door opens, yeah, the, door door opens the door for him using yeah. the key, and then he steps through and uh, cut the black. That's the end of chapter Yeah, and the world went dark, and the low roar filled Richard's head like the maddened growling of a thousand enraged beasts. And then chapter 20 begins chapter uh, 20. using literally the same first two sentences. The world went dark. <laughs> uh, and this whole chapter, we really don't... There's a couple of things that we're going to touch on, but there's really nothing to talk about. It's like 30 pages... Of Richard realizing that he doesn't like being back in his regular life. Um, yes. That's all it is. But there, there's a couple of things that happen that are worth talking about, and we'll definitely go through. But uh, just to talk about this is, I, I feel like a slightly needlessly long. Yeah, it's just all about Richard hating boring London, uh, standing up for himself now. He's like a different yeah. person. There's, a, there's like... a scene with Jessica where she comes back after he gets this promotion, and she's mm -hmm. all like... I'm sorry, I'm, you know, and he calls her Jess, and he's like, I kind of miss you calling me Jess, you know, and then he, and then she gives him his ring back and says, you know, maybe someday you could think about giving it to me again, and he and he gives the ring back to her right then, and he says, honestly, I don't think so, and she's like, did you find somebody else? And he, he, he thinks about all the all the females that he had thought about kissing in the, in the book, and, uh, and he's like, he thought about... Uh, I don't think he thought about Hunter, but I think he thought about Lamia, Anesthesia, I think he did. Hunter, Dor, and he's like, no, there really isn't anybody else. I just, I'm a different person. Uh, I've changed is what yeah. he actually says. The, the chapter's necessary. I think it could have been done more quickly. Definitely could have been done more quickly. They they do a lot of jumping around, a lot of BSing about how Richard's like, all right, well, I guess I'm just back to this boring life where my freaking yeah. work friends are going to set me up with yeah. this boring-ass work chick. <laughs> you know? We don't know exactly how much time passes during this chapter, but he does get a buildup of realizing that he doesn't like being back, that all he can think about is London Below. Yeah, he doesn't care about any of his old things. He comes home and he doesn't watch TV. He it's has all, all like, boring old... and meaningless. Yeah. In the same way that, like, it's sort of 
like a be careful what you wish for sort of thing. Exactly. Because he gets not only his life back, but everything that he wants. Because, as the abbot said, the door will give you more or less what you, or the, the key will give you more, he doesn't say it in so many words, but the, the key's going to take you where you want to go. And where it takes him is now like an alternate reality of London above, almost in a way where it creates a situation where everybody thinks that he was just on vacation. Mm-hmm. Not that he just comes back after this undetermined time of like, well, where the hell were you and what happened to you? He comes back and they all have had their memory modified, being like, oh, you just went on vacation. Well, and he got like a promotion. Yeah, he's got and, a promotion, just uh, he already had it coming back. He didn't like go back and be like, oh, by the way, we were thinking about promoting you. No, he just has it already. Yeah, he just already has this promotion. He's got this confidence and then he gets this penthouse suite instead of, because yeah. <laughs> they rented so out his So he's old created flat. this like ideal universe for himself using the key. And it's more than he needed. Like, he gave himself a perfect life unconsciously, and now that he's in this perfect life, realizes that, God, this perfect life sucks. Yeah, be careful. What do you do without having something to work for, you know, is, I think, the underlying tone. Or, you know, I mean, he still has, like, a friend. I think Gary is still his friend, but it's like. Yeah, he still totally gets along with Gary, and Gary's cool or whatever. Yeah, but. But yeah, even Gary notices, like, you're being kind of weird, man. What's going on? Yeah, you okay? And Richard's like, okay, let me just tell you everything, and then they. Yeah, so they go out for a night uh, with some a bunch of co-workers. What's her name is trying to set Richard up with... It's just the new girl. The, the new, new girl, girl in computer here. I can look yeah. it up. You keep talking. But the, the, the lady that sets up the uh, the whole night out is that girl from before. She's the assistant to the head of the company or whatever. And then the girl that they're setting Richard up with... It's is just some new girl in computing The or girl from computer services. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I don't think they ever even give her a name. No, right? because <laughs> yeah, she matters so services. little. Yeah, that's how... A little it ends up mattering. So they all go out for drinks. Um, and like I think they also go for like movie or whatever it is. Yeah. And then uh, during that time, uh, Gary's like, dude, what's up with you? And yeah, then Richard go, alienates himself. Gary goes yeah. to find him. And then and then Gary's like, well, let's just, well, fuck it. Let's, let's ditch this and we'll go talk about it. And then Richard ends up telling him the entire story. And Gary's like, dude, you need to go see somebody. Something's yeah. wrong with you. I'm a little worried about you, buddy. And then, uh, and then he's like, "Hey, you want to get a taxi?" Richard didn't hear him, so he says it again. And then they get a taxi, uh, and Richard's like, "Hey, you take this one; I'll get the next one." And so Gary's like, "Thanks, mate. I'll see you on Monday." And then you know he Richard leaves. starts walking around. Yeah, Richard just doesn't want to deal with anything. He's just thinking about everything. And he sees a nice old homeless lady. Right, and he starts talking to her, um, just being like kind of crazy. He's having like a bit of a breakdown. Yeah, Richard's being a little goofy. And he uh, ends up taking out the knife that Hunter had given him. His knife now. And yeah, his knife now. And scratches a door into a wall. Freaking the, the old lady the frame out. of a door. Yeah, he's like saying all this like crazy stuff, being crazy. He's pounding on the wall. He's screaming for door. Uh, the character door. Yeah. And hey, is there up, anyone in there? Can you hear me? It's me, Richard. Door. Someone. He heard his hand, but he kept banging and flailing at the brickwork. And then the madness left him, and he stopped. Sorry, he said to the old lady. And she's pretending to be asleep, so she didn't say anything. And then uh, Richard's kind of hit rock bottom. He's kind of yeah. crumpled down on He's the ground. Like, like, what have I done to myself? Like, 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 how could yeah. I have messed up I this I shouldn't have bad. left that. You know, like, this is all great, but it's so unfulfilling. You know, whatever he may be thinking. Mm-hmm. At this point, we just project our own thoughts onto him because he doesn't say anything. But what I imagine is that he's like, you know, I'm not getting anything out of any of this. Yeah, I wrote rock bottom. Even though he's killing it at life, he's like rock bottom emotionally. He's not mm-hmm. satisfied anymore with uh, with boring London. And then he looks back at the uh, door uh, drawing that he made, and it's no longer there. Instead, there's a hole, and there's a man standing there. The yeah. Marquis de Carabas raised an eyebrow. Well, he said irritably, are you coming? And then Richard gets up and follows him, and that's the end of the book.
Yay! Yes. <laughs> I honestly, I so I really enjoyed it. I I don't like to critique authors' endings um, very much. I think uh, I think, however, they want to end, or you know, not even necessarily all author, just authors, but movies, shows, anything. I don't like to critique an ending because that was their vision, and so that's mm-hmm. their ending. Whether I like it or not, it's not mine, you know. And then yeah. once it becomes public, you know, it's it's ours to enjoy, but. It's not really mine to say like, hey, I could have come up with a better ending because then I should have, and I should have written in the book, you know. But right. um, I, I honestly, I enjoyed it. We had a, there were a few little discrepancies, a few little things that didn't seem um, to be completely like canon. He seemed to have written not canon, that's the wrong word, but completely in sync, just you consistent know? with the storytelling. Yeah. And the and I think that whenever you're writing something. That is a bit of a mystery. Mm-hmm. Um, that has some moving parts that need to come together at the end. You either write the end first, or at least you know know what the end is going to be, yeah, and then find the threads into that end. Mm-hmm. Or, like what J.K. Rowling did with Harry Potter, is that you just start writing and then at the end find those threads and bring them together into an idea. Yeah, I mean, whenever you read those books a ton of times, you can tell that, that she kind of left herself a little a few Easter eggs to pick up along the way so she could rewrite. Cause, yeah. Because in the seventh book, when you re-listen, I think they drop something about Beetle the Bard or whatever in book like two. And uh, like when Harry it's goes all to just visit like the universe build, At least in the way that I see it, having read the book several times and then also in the way that she's descriptive she's very vocal about what she you know what her writing process was what she does now and she's gone back and said but like with the whole Dumbledore's gay thing was yeah, just that... an offhand comment that she made at like a speaking event where somebody asked did Dumbledore ever have a wife and then she was just like oh Dumbledore's gay which is just something that she knew about the character but never put into the books because it didn't matter yeah no, and so she's done all sorts of things like that since having written the books where she just reveals all these like different little character tidbits of the things that she knew but like as she was in as she's said before she was just writing the books and then she was able to pull those threads together at the end whenever she found what the end thing was going to be yeah um dumbledore is the best dumbledore is great dumbledore is my second favorite example of the string puller uh character yeah 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 um the one who really knows everything that's happening and uh has you know the greater plan and um you know unfortunately at sometimes you know to some people's uh, hurt feeling uh manipulates them to be to you know enact his plan and stuff like that which is something that his brother aberforth complains about whenever they first meet him in the seventh book he's like that motherfucker was always just manipulating (laughs) people for the thing that he thought was best you know yeah bastard um you know in this one the marquis seemed to be the string puller but then later it reveals that Islington was a bit more of a string puller, um, just because nobody really knew the, the ultimate goal. But I think they were both kind of pulling strings. I just there I doesn't it seem to be. I don't think that. Or I mean, go ahead and finish what you're saying. I'm sorry. Oh, sorry. No, I just wish there had been more. Like we were talking about uh, a couple a couple episodes ago, how we didn't want to know everything the Marquis was doing, and then literally <laughs> the next chapter it tells you everything the Marquis's off doing. Yeah. I kind of wish there had been a little bit more uh, create creative uh, license for our part, so we could think like, what was the Marquis up to? Like we, right. we know a few things that like I wish that it kind of gave us just a little bit more. Um, the thing with this book, mystery, um, which uh, I think the thing that I appreciate most about this book is that it's very short. Uh, everything happens, like, in a week. Less than a week, actually. Yeah. Um, and then Richard being back and going through all of that, that might be a week or something like that, too. Mm-hmm. So the time of everything is very short, and so it's all 
and everything happens very quickly. And so it's just a very short, like, uh, I keep saying very short. It's just a, a, a vignette of something that happens in this world. Yeah. Which potentially Neil Gaiman could use as a, a means of writing more stories mm-hmm. in London Below that don't necessarily have to do with these characters. Yeah. Um, he if he just does them each in like little installments, just, you know, vignettes of this world rather than an overarching story like The Lord of the Rings yeah. or Harry Potter. Kind of like how Terry Pratchett always goes back to Discworld, but ne- not every book Yeah, is everything congruent. just exists yeah. in that universe. And Which some is... of it might connect here and there, even if it's only just like the same city yeah, or something yeah. like that, you know? I haven't read any of them, but I know that he's got like 40 fucking books in that yeah, series, I, you know? I read like <laughs> There's half, no way they all connect. <laughs> yeah, I read half of The Color of Magic, and that was a really weird book because it was about okay. this wizard that didn't have... He only knew one spell, but it was like the most badass spell in the world. But he like <laughs> he was like so scared to use it because he didn't know exactly what it was. Mm-hmm. So, that, but it was funny because he like he had this one fucking ultimate spell. He basically had like a level five spell and no other level four, three, two, one. You know, right. <laughs> any any other level. But uh, yeah, enough about other books. So, so how did you feel about the, this one, uh, Neil Gaiman's Neverwhere? There are problems that I have with it. Uh, mostly those consistency things when it came down to the end. Which I think was just something that happens whenever you write yourself into a bit of a corner and you don't take the time to go back and figure it out. I mean, in the prologue, when it talks about him writing the book, it says he wrote it really fast, like in a couple, in like four or five months. I know Stephen King yeah. always says if you can't finish a book or at least the idea outline for the book in two months, what are you doing? <laughs> you know, he, yeah. he's very, but he's you know an eight to eight to five writer. Yeah, if it describes know? him as having written it very fast, then yeah, I mean it makes sense. I'm not going to fault him for doing anything. Oh um, yeah, certainly no. since we've as we've already talked about, this is his first like novel, novel, yeah. or at least the first one that gets published. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe he wrote other. Th- I, mean, I, I know that he wrote other things before, but this was his first fully published work. Was it um, as a single like thing? He did like some writing for like comics and stuff like that before oh, okay. that, uh, and he may have even had a series published. But this was his first like novel that was published. Mm-hmm. So, well, I for can... sure he was a writer when the BBC picked him up to write yeah. for Neil Neverwhere. Now maybe he was a scriptwriter and then he jumped into books. I didn't know mm-hmm. this was his first book. We I were saying that, fir- but I think this is his first published novel. Oh, okay. He may have written some of his other books first, or at least started on them. I know he did the comics things first, or the comics got published at least before oh, he wrote this. comic books. There okay. was a, um, there was actually something that was happening, uh, unrelated to all of this more or less, uh, in a podcast that I was listening to about something else, and then they referenced um, how Neil Gaiman had an interaction with uh, somebody on Twitter, where they said... They were complaining about writing and comic books about something, blah, blah, blah. And then they were trying to talk. The, the Twitter user was trying to reference Neil Gaiman as an example for something. And then Neil Gaiman was like, that's not how writing works. You don't know what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. I wrote a bunch of different stuff before my comics got published. They just didn't get published before the comics did. Right. Um, so just from that tidbit, I know that he wrote these his, a couple of his books, probably including Neverwhere, before the comics got published, but the comics got published first, and then the books got published. So, I don't, you know, I don't know. This is all, like, timeline stuff that I may mean, or may not matter, but um, there was just those inconsistencies I felt like could have been avoided by simply paying attention, and even if you're already at the end and don't want to go back and change some things, me being super... Um, specific about that sort of stuff, I would have gone back and fixed it. I think I would have liked to also, I I'm, I just have a feeling, I guess I want to give him the benefit of the doubt, it's something that he might not have noticed or in his mind yeah. he thought. and I know. absolutely don't know the situation that he was in at the time either. Y- yeah. There could be a million things that played into it being an actual impossibility for him mm-hmm. to go back and fix things. 
Um, or like you just said, a, a million different things that kept him from even noticing them. Yeah. So there's certainly no reason for fault. Uh, it's just something that me as the end user, mm -hmm. the reader of the book, catches on and um, it just bothers me. Yeah. The different little things there. You think you're going to watch the show now and give it a shot? Maybe. I don't yeah. know. I mean, we kind of probably... I don't watch a lot of shows to begin with anyways, but I would certainly be interested in having a visual representation of it. Yeah. With this, as far as the ending goes, it probably ends as perfectly as it can for this book, given mm -hmm. how short everything else is in the book. It just seems it's a little unf unfulfilling for me. Okay. I hope that there will come a sequel. And there's room for a sequel because, one, Dora's got to find her sister. Right. Uh, she wants to reunite London Two, below. there's all this stuff, yeah, where she talks about finishing her father's work or mm -hmm. starting it, really. Yeah. And then Richard's got to go back and find a role now in London Below. Yeah. We assume he's going to just be hanging out with Dora all the time. Maybe they get married or whatever. Yeah, he's her hero, you know, so. Yeah, so there's definitely room for another story to be told of course, within this world, and then definitely with these characters. Yeah, it's just, to me, it seems a little unlikely that he'll write another book. Just oh, well, because yeah. it's been, in the, in, there's a little extra tidbit in the in the author's preferred text. It's got how the Marquis uh, got his coat back. It's this little uh, story. It's like a hundred-something pages. At least it felt like it. And um, mm -hmm. it was, it's interesting, and at the beginning, he writes a little prologue about how the BBC... Uh, BBC Radio actually got um, Benedict Cumberbatch and a few other celebrities, I can't remember their name, to, to do a radio broadcast version of this uh, of this book. And he loved it so much. He's like, man, I wish there was more. And he said he started this uh, this work back in 02, his uh, How the Marquis Got His Coat Back, and he's like, I have to finish it. And this was in two, 2013 when he got that uh, the recording of the BBC Radio edition mm -hmm. and uh and then I, I don't know if he came out with it that year or finished it that year but i think it was pretty recently after that that he that he finished it and oh, geez. Uh, it was uh dirk mags who i don't know james mm -hmm. mcavoy natalie dormer and benedict cumberbatch who's uh, james mcavoy why should i know i feel like james mcavoy know. played professor x in the most recent uh what are they called x-men <laughs> professor the... x the x-men movies uh, first class oh cool and uh um and then he was also in uh the fucking whoa wanted don't worry they're curving the bullets with yeah. uh, angelina jolie i like um, that and then natalie dormer she uh, she plays lady marjorie in game oh, of thrones that's why they got her the most beautiful woman in all of westeros the uh, most beautiful woman in all of the actual world in my eh, opinion i'm in well, love in with your natalie opinion, dormer. that's that's good she is pretty i think she's got a bit of like a pointy squirrely face not that i mean well, i'm all about it i'm yeah. all about those squirrels man <laughs> i'm all about the squirrely face the but, cute cheeks and yeah so yeah those are big people yeah, no, that's they got it. And if that was in 2013, cast. that was after all of these people we already know about. Oh, after they're all all stars. Because, like, yeah, it's so. an all star radio. It's a radio broadcast too. They got these beautiful people to be on a on a radio. Well, they're thing. prominent British actors. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and you know everybody loves the little Benedict <clears throat> Cumberbatch. Right. But uh, uh, so, yeah. would you read another Neil Gaiman? You think? Absolutely. I would too. I, I liked it. Um, I want to read American Gods because everybody that has read American Gods and that has referenced it in different things that I watch and listen to says that it's really fucking good. And that's a gaming? Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, one more time, what was that title? American Gods. American Gods. Writing it down. Yeah, maybe later on we'll get to it. Maybe in an episode in the future. Or a series of episodes if we decide to read it like this one. Yeah. Um, um, speaking of which, we need to figure out what our next book's going to be. 
Cool. Yeah, nothing else you had to say about Neverwhere? You think it's oh, all I'm settled sorry. up? or? Um, that's all I had to say about it. I think maybe I'll come to appreciate it and like it more mm-hmm. uh, having it in hindsight. Yeah. But right now, there's a little bit of dissatisfaction with the end and uh, definitely with some of those inconsistencies. Yeah, is it just the is it the ending of the book? The like, literal ending. Okay, yeah. what was what were you I not just, satisfied? It's just a little unfulfilling. I don't feel like there was enough closure, in my opinion. Yeah, I don't know. In my in my mind, if they hadn't have sent Richard to boring London and spent fucking twenty pages describing how much it sucks, and then and then just putting him back in cool London, like I feel like he should have just stuck with him. And then <laughs> you know, I, I know that's dumb, yeah. but it, it didn't I, really do anything for me. Him going meeting Gary, turning down Jessica, it's like we knew he was, we knew he had all these skills now, and it's like yeah, but it has to be explained. I guess it has no, to you're be. Right. It has to be said so that it can be you know like definitive, and even, even though we can all assume it. It is cool, though. That it might show that, honestly, I like to think that it shows that Richard has something a little more. Not necessarily that he's like an opener or anything, but he did cut a door out of nothing, and then he banged on it, and like, that's not magic we know of, like that, especially from it, a London above her. I think it just further speaks to the connection between him and Door that had the first door open. Uh, I'd love to believe Richard's uh, got a little bit of juice in him. Magic juice, by the way, that's what I meant. <laughs> I'd love to think he's got a little bit of mana back pulled up. but I mean, I now mean, that he's a not. part of the world below, he's definitely going to grow into something of that nature, we can assume, because mm-hmm. magic exists there. And like with most stories that deal with people of magic and people without magic, once you enter the world, you start to take on features of that world. Mm-hmm. So definitely that could be something that grows in his future. But for the sake of this story, I think that it's just another iteration of his connection with Dor. Gotcha. Um, I would like to recommend that everyone reads the uh, the final story, the little extra oh, add-on. Yeah, how the Carabas got his coat back. Yeah, how the Carabas gets his coat back. It's, it's a fun, fun. little add-on, yeah. especially if you want a little more of this universe. It definitely give it a read. You An can introduction probably... of a couple of interesting characters, including yeah. one character that is close to Carabas. Yeah, it's very very cool. Um, I enjoyed listening to it. I'm going to listen to that part again. I think on the way home after this podcast, but uh, <laughs> it was just fun. It. Uh, I would recommend it to anybody. So if you get the chance, um, I don't know if it's in every edition, but I, I'd hate to say look it up online to see if you can get it for free because, you know, support the author. But, right. um, you know, get it however you can and tell Neil what you think because he's a great author and I, I loved his first book. So I would love to check out another one. But anyway, let's check out another one of our books. Um, so we're, for the next one, we're going to go ahead and pick from one of the three that were part of the original four, including Neverwhere, that we picked from. The three leftovers, the first one being Brian Sanderson's Warbreaker. That was the runner-up from last yeah. time. I don't know if y'all remember that. Was that was in the final two of yeah, the one, four, which is not like it was a great tournament. but And then the other one being Beacon 23, which was... Uh, the, the one about the uh, effective lighthouse in space. Yeah, that was really cool. I like that one, that idea a lot. And then the other one was Saturn Run, which was about how uh, there's a signal that they, or not a signal, but they they identify an object going towards Saturn and slowing down. So they determine that it's not natural; it's artificial. And uh, so then the world uh, begins on a space race to go find out what it is and figure out. Um, you figure out what it is and obtain whatever alien technology it was. Oh, dude, you have such a good memory. I'm so glad you remembered all that because I was like, I have no idea what Saturn was about. <laughs> and then you saying all that, I was like, oh yeah, I remember reading that out loud. Do you remember what Warbreaker was about by any chance? Warbreaker was 
about um, there's just a high fantasy world. Mm-hmm. There's a magic called breath, which is an offering to the gods or whatever. That's what it's being used as yeah, most yeah, yeah. commonly. There's like a disposed or a deposed, not disposed, a deposed royal family of sorts. Uh, and then there's a character that has figured out a new way to utilize breath. And that's all that the, the, the sort of the hook page gives. Okay. Um, well, um, how do you want to do this? Do you just want to go with the runner-up? Or you said you had a bit of an idea. That seems, how you please, to... Yeah, that definitely seems like the way to go is to go with the runner-up, right? Um, yeah, that's what I would And think. it is enough of a pace change being more classical high fantasy, uh, you know, taking place in a fully fictional world, full-on magic and swords and sorcery sort of thing. But the, the sort of idea that I was going to present was that we change tact a little bit more by going sci-fi. Okay. Which Neverwhere is a bit of a cross between sci-fi and high fantasy uh, because it takes place in the real world, but there is a fantasy version of London, which it being in a real world and having elements of fantasy sort of makes it sci-fi fantasy. And there were a lot of elements of the real world in this fake, not fake, but in the, in cool London, there were, they used all of boring London's yeah. old broken down it's, shit to make... It gets described as modern fantasy and all the reviews of it. Oh, okay. um, but it's definitely just like a, a, a conjunction of several different kinds of fantasy. Uh, um, I will tell you that Courtney, um, when she listened to our first podcast, she recommended... Beacon 23, that's, uh, by the way, guys, that's Mr. Kippy's youngest uh, daughter. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, Yeah, Beacon 23 definitely is really interesting. And we don't know how, you know, exactly what kind of genre it will be. Mm-hmm. We know that it's sci-fi because there's space stuff happening, yeah. you know, stuff that's beyond our current technology in real life. Um, but we don't know what's going to happen mm-hmm. once everything gets off. Um, are there aliens? Uh, are the aliens magical? Anything yeah. like that. We have no idea what's going to happen. Uh, Saturn Run appears to be more of a hard sci-fi thing with the existence of aliens just being a, a, a just a, a, a plot vehicle. Yeah. I think the entire, from what we can gather from the hook page of Saturn Run, the entirety of the story... Uh, takes place around the race to get to it yeah and then depending on how far in the uh when they get to the item is uh it could either turn one way or another and we'll see how it happens then. wasn't there kind of a vibe in that hook page that it was sort of had that uh transformers feel like they'd found some futuristic technology they determined that, that it's because they... what it does is it, it it's not just an item that flies by saturn it slows down and natural objects don't slow down. Right, especially in uh, space. Spacecraft do. So it, it's like what it says, spacecraft does. Yeah, um, spacecraft So they, they, now everybody thinks it's an alien thing. we got to go figure it out so that we can get ahead of the other countries. Which it could potentially, if it's an alien thing, they find out that it's an alien thing, cool. Um, or maybe it does some, maybe it does some interstellar stuff. Mm-hmm. And we find out that it's just technology from future humans. Gotcha. Because that's what Interstellar is about. Yeah. I, <laughs> Spoiler I, I, alert, they're future humans, they're not aliens. Hey. Um, no, I'm just kidding. But anyway, so that that's all of our pitches again. How do you want to do this? I really don't know. The um, My initial inclination is to go towards Warbreaker, because that's my vibe. Mm-hmm. And that's my, uh, you know, that's my element, is high fantasy. Speaking 23 came to us with a good recommendation. Yes. And um, it's a shorter book, so we could get through it a little quicker. Yeah. Not that that really matters, but... And then just the whole sci-fi thing, period, between Beacon 23 and Saturn Run, I think might be a little refreshing to totally go in a different direction mm-hmm. and just be sci-fi. 
But I, I mean, you know, I really don't know. They all are interesting enough that I want to read them and will probably will at some point. Yeah. What do you think? Uh, honestly, just like I was thinking we were going to pick Warbreaker just because it was the runner-up. I kind of want to do Beacon 23. I don't know what's pulling me towards it, but uh, it might be fun to change pace. I'm, I'm down for either. It's, it's up to you, Mr. Will. Yeah, let's just go ahead and do Beacon 23. Okay, cool. So the book is Beacon 23 it's by official. Hugh Howey. For the first section for this week's reading, we're going to get up to chapter 13. So chapters 1 through 12. It's in this edition of the book that I have in front of me, uh, that's a 92 pages worth of reading. I'm sorry, not even that. 91 pages worth of reading. Follow us on Twitter. Oh, yeah. Follow us on Twitter at ears underscore stamps. At our email, it's dog ears and time stamps, all spelled out, at gmail.com. And then our Instagram is at ears underscore stamps. Just like the Twitter handle. And then if you want to find us on iTunes or any sort of uh, podcasting app, that would be dog ears. One word, right? Yeah, one word. Uh, dog ears space ampersand space timestamps one word so three words if ampersand is a word two words and an ampersand yeah. <laughs> anyway but that's how you find us i'm sure you guys know but uh tell your friends um you know tell your friends tell your family tell people that you think would be interested uh we need just you tell guys people on the street yeah just tell stop anybody people and tell them this is a podcast that you should listen to put a, put a poster up in your local library and tell them about this awesome podcast don't even ask the librarian for permission just fucking do it yeah ask for forgiveness just not for permission it. that's rule number one so never ask for permission Ask for forgiveness. Yeah. So, anyway, I think <laughs> I think we got a great book lined up, and I'm really excited to get after it. We'll we'll see you next week. I'm Will Hedrick, and I'm Jordan Schaffer. Don't forget your dog ears and timestamps.